Hello and welcome to Season of a Bitch, the leftist feminist podcast that's ready to talk about sex, baby. (laughs) A baby! (laughs) Today we have Zoe, Jules, Laura, and Kellen. So on past ups, we've talked about the purposeful lack of education around LGBT related topics, especially on recent episodes and um, comprehensive sex ed in the U.S. So this week we're giving you a sex ed lesson of our own and we'll be emphasizing queer and trans identities, of course. So we're going to be talking about pleasure, consent, contraceptives, safer sex practices, abortion and more. Thank you to everyone who sent us in questions. There were some very important questions that I don't know. I don't even know that we would have thought of, but y'all had some good things you want to know about and we're going to tell you. Well, we're going to get to as many as we can today. If we don't answer yours this time, we will hopefully be answering them on another episode soon. Um, Y'all have a lot of questions about sex and we're happy for you. (laughs) Stay curious. Stay curious. (laughs) Also, if you have other questions after listening to this episode, send them our way um, because we'll be hoping to do more of this soon for legal reasons. Please note, no one on this podcast is a medical professional. So if anything we say makes you want to make a medical decision, we would advise you consulting someone who maybe is trained. um, But we're just here to tell you our experiences and what we know. I don't know what you're talking about, Zoe. I am literally a doctor. So <laughs> um, don't direct. ask in what. <laughs> That's not relevant. I was going to say we're not me. medical professionals, but I think at least the four of us together adds up to at least one sex professional. So I, I think, <laughs> oh, yes, yeah, no, sex professional. We we've got that shit covered. But um, please send any lawsuits to dr kellen she will handle them for us <laughs> not a lawyer um yes yeah, send those to bianca please hopefully yes! they're still willing to be our attorney exactly oh my god love you bianca <laughs> so thank you for keeping us out of legal hot water i said for legal reasons we're not medical professionals and you said you are so no no, no i was making i'm saying you're right no, I know. I, you, you were it was good that you said that <laughs> Just kidding. Anyway, um, if you like take medical advice from what you hear on a podcast, that's between you and you. So- <laughs> Extremely true. <laughs> anyway, thought we could start off by briefly sharing what our experiences with six with six ed with sex ed was like. The sixth and- sense featuring Bruce Willis and sex ed. Just kidding. I don't know. I don't know why I brought him into this because he's like not sexy, like not even a little bit. Okay. Sorry about it. (laughs) Okay. So, yes. Um, I would say that like the sex education I had was comprehensive in the sense that like they did teach us about all different forms of birth control and also about like STDs. And I feel like in the US, maybe that's like as comprehensive as it gets. Um, at least when I was in high school, one millennial ago, just kidding, a decade. So (laughs) anyway, um, we had it, I want to say maybe every other year, but I don't fully remember. I feel like it was like sixth grade, eighth grade, and maybe 10th grade feels right. Um, 
it was typically taught by the gym teachers. And what I remember from my middle school one, this is the only thing I remember. And ours was always like co-ed. Um, so we played this game, like an STD game where basically you received like an index card that said like, if you had an STD or not, and then you like, didn't know other people's status, I think, or maybe you could share. It was basically like tag, but if you got tagged by someone who had an STD card, you had an STD. Um, and this was to teach us how STDs spread. Nice. That's horrifying. I hate that. <laughs> yeah. Um, very strong memory of just like, just that. That's literally that all I remember. Extremely the PEification of sexual <laughs> sexual education. Like yes. also, I just want to take us back for a second to the disclaimer at the beginning that we're not medical professionals. We're not medical professionals, but also <laughs> neither were neither they. Are PE teachers. <laughs> that is a good point. Great point. Great point. Yeah. No. And then my high school health teacher or sex ed teacher was like actually the guy from Mean Girls who was like, if you have sex, you will get chlamydia and die. He was the football coach, um, Coach Grow. His name's Joe Grow. Shout out. Um, it wasn't your fault they made you teach that class. <laughs> if Joe, you're listening, it wasn't your growing, fault. <laughs> thriving. We wish you well. All right. Um, so safe to say I was already an expert in sex, but when I did from all of that, how could it not be? Um, when I started dating my girlfriend in 11th grade, we had like a lot of things to figure out. I remember going to the bookstore and like secretly being like taking out like sex books and like secretly looking at them. Um, and also the first time I had an orgasm, I like did not know what was happening. Um, I was just like, oh, cool. That was fun. But like we hadn't been like taught that that was an option. I don't really think we talked about like men's orgasms either. Like cis men, like I just don't think we talked about it, but I don't know. And then, oh, the other thing I was remembering is that like, cause I was thinking about how pleasure is taught. And I remember in eighth grade, my health teacher was like a very butch gym teacher. And she was telling us how, if you do like kegels, like squeeze your vagina muscles while you're having sex with a penis, that, um, that feels good. She also frequently told us about her, um, the four husbands she had had. So just for some context. Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, (laughs) I just, I'm stuck on Kegels. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Wow. Mm. Uh, I mean, I think my my sex ed experience was similar. Like, I think it was probably better than average in the U.S. Um, we had, like, in fifth or sixth grade, I think, kind of like a basic anatomy lesson that was just, like, here's what a penis is, here's what a vagina is, which like, I do think is good because there can be a lot of stigma about talking about those types of things. Um, And then in middle school, we had, I think it was like a weekly class that was kind of about all different things like peer pressure, drug use, et cetera. And then like one of the recurring things was sex ed. Um, I do remember that it was kind of funny because it was taught by our school's college counselor and she was clearly like very uncomfortable talking about sex. And it was kind of like, why did they pick her to do this? Um, Like, I don't know. I think that like you were saying also, Zoe, like having a PE teacher teach it, it's like, 
it does make sense to have someone teach sex ed who is specifically very comfortable and experienced with that, not just like a random teacher, um, but who teaches like something else. But I, from my memory, also, there wasn't a lot about sex itself or like what sex was like. A lot of it was more so about like puberty and like changes that your body was going to go through. Um, for the sex part, I just remember that they gave us this book that I think was like a teen version of Our Bodies Ourselves, um, which is this like feminist book about like basically how bodies work. Um, that just kind of laid out like factual information about puberty and sex, um, which I did find really useful, kind of similar to what you were saying about like going to the bookstore, Zoe, this was like, I had these books like hidden under my bed, like this one. And there was like, I think there was like an American girl book about getting your period or something. Like I just had this little stack of books that I would like take out when I was alone in my room and look at. (laughs) Um, but in ret- which like so that that was like good and I think was a good way for me to learn about it in retrospect I just think it maybe like introduced more sort of secrecy and like mm-hmm. shame to the process than really needed to be there because they basically like just gave us this book and we're like if you want to know anything just like read this like we're not <laughs> really going to talk about it um and I also do remember that it when we had sex ed classes they were almost always split by gender even as we got older um which I always thought was sort of weird and like transness queerness intersex identities were never mentioned at all um I think maybe like queerness might have been briefly mentioned just to be like hey like this is about straight sex so this might not apply to you if you're gay but that was definitely the extent of it that's very helpful (laughs) right like just so you know this it doesn't apply to you (laughs) anyway that's really funny we didn't even have that disclaimer I think that the school that I went to had sort of the same approach that Mahmoud Ahmadinejad had during his time as the leader of Iran which was there are no gays in Iran Um, similarly, there were no gays at Charlotte Latin school, um, was sort of what was assumed. So we definitely like, didn't have any, any of that kind of thing. Mine was very much the, if you have sexual, get pregnant and die mean girls thing. Um, it was just like, here's some really graphic images of like progressed untreated topical STDs. This will happen to you if you get sex or if you have sex. Um, of course, like they were specifically talking about like, penetrative piv sex that was like all that was discussed um and yeah it was uh it was pretty bad yeah um you know my high school was extremely fucked up talked about this a bunch all the time um i went to a public school but ours was basically non-existent um it wasn't until high school and it's just one semester and like you're generally taking it as a freshman, but if you like do music and art, it doesn't fit in your schedule until you're a senior. So I took it as a senior. Um, our health teacher, who was also a gym, so it's like an elective. Yeah, it was like not required at a certain time or anything like that. But you like had to take one health credit before you graduated. It just that mm. was it. Interesting. So fucking weird, right? <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, there was a small section on STDs, but it wasn't comprehensive and we had to do the thing. So this is similar to Zoe's, but different. So everyone was passed out a cup 
and it had water in it and she had put a little bit of chlorine into it um and then like went around the room and you would like dump from one cup into the other and then like split it back into two and then at the end you do like a test to see like which things have chlorine in them and basically again was trying to illustrate how fast scds can spread um but yeah went to a public school we also had a married religious couple come in and talk about abstinence with us like as an assembly in my school um (laughs) yeah like what new york state tax dollars go to it was really scary um what is they were just like abstinence is good like what they tell you also the dude was like i had sex before marriage but then i like repented my sins or whatever and we all were just like i mean like i also grew up catholic so like having that i didn't realize was weird in a public school until i was older because for me i was like oh yeah i mean like this makes sense this is what i'm taught too at home right and at like the religious ed classes i had to take wild But yeah, basically everything I have ever learned, I've done as I went along. Um, But the best resource I ever found was a massive book on queer sex um, when I first started having sex with women and non-binary people. And it's called The Whole Lesbian Sex Book. And I highly recommend it. I also just in terms of um, like resources, want to like throw out that while this wasn't necessarily like our intention with the episode, we ended up doing a lot of like sex ed adjacent stuff on our sex toys episode. And we did have a like queer sex educator come on um, and a name Jamie. And she does like, she actually works in a public school and is like a professional who teaches sex ed like for a living. And that is her literal job. And she's like incredible and is the sex educator that I wish I had. And we've also done an episode called sex and sex ed with, which is like a long time ago, um, which featured Tanya from the Trillbillies. So those are some other fun little um, pieces of um, media that you can check out if you're interested in this stuff, not to self-promo too much. Yeah, I also, this is not a resource I'm advocating, but I did learn a lot about sex from Cosmo Magazine. <clears throat> For me, um, I was sex in the city. Um, oh, that too. <laughs> yeah, not the right, not the right no. outlet. No. For learning learning what sex is yeah so i think with that we're gonna get into more like things that we think should be taught in sex ed but aren't yes definitely so i wanted to start by talking a little bit about pleasure and consent um like ways to ask for consent during sex um i think one thing that i wanted to talk about is just common question that we received is sort of like how to talk about x how to ask about x um and i think a lot of my advice on that front is just gonna be like you just have to do it and like it will be awkward at first and then it will get less awkward um but i think like one thing especially when you're newer to having sex or a specific type of sex like talking about it beforehand can often be helpful like before you're literally like in the bedroom undressing, like having a conversation with someone you're on a date with or hanging out with. It's just like, Hey, like, so we're, we're going to have sex. Like that's, that's been agreed. What, what do you like during sex? Are there places you don't like to be touched? Are there places you really do like to be touched? Like having a very like non 
sexual conversation about that, um, I think can be, and again, like that, it can be awkward. I don't think it necessarily works for everyone, but um, I've found that that's something, especially when I was like newer to things that having someone else do that made me feel a lot more comfortable. And so that's like something that I've tried to bring, especially to situations where I, or I think the other person might be like slightly uncomfortable. Um, It's just like getting it all out there. I think that's really good advice. And like, I think the good news is that like conversations about that kind of stuff do get easier. Like the longer you're with somebody and like whatever, I I mean with someone in like a very broad Mm -hmm. sweeping context, whether that's in the context of like a committed relationship or just like a hookup or whatever, that like the more, the better you know someone, the easier it is to talk, the easier it is to be like, hey, like I feel like, um, you know, we've been doing a lot of this, but I'd like to try this or I've noticed you do that. And actually, you know, I've been thinking about it and I prefer this other thing. And it can be really difficult with like new partners. And I feel like that's one of the reasons that sex frequently gets better, like the better you know someone. Not that I'm like a don't have sex with randos type of person. That is not what I'm advocating. (laughs) Let's be clear. But it is like a nice benefit of like, you know, the fourth time you have sex with someone, it's a little easier and frequently a little better. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like I should say also, like, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't also communicate during sex. Like, definitely, Mm -hmm. there are lots of ways to ask for different things that you want. Like, even just like something simple, like, can you go faster? Can you go slower? Like those types of things. Um, A little up, a little to the right. Right, exactly. Um, That like, I think can feel maybe awkward, or like you shouldn't say them or that they might hurt someone's feelings. But Mm -hmm. then uh, once you do it, you realize that it's actually like, quite normal. And it's gonna help the other person as well, because they just want to know how to please you. And like, it's really it it, like will not be as awkward as it is in your mind. Yeah. Um, I think the other thing is that straight sex typically Mm -hmm. has like, somewhat defined assumptions about like what each partner is going to be doing and what you're going to like in sex um especially just when it comes to like penetrating versus being penetrated um I think queer sex can be like harder to sort of figure out those like literal physical dynamics at first because you have to talk about them but on the other hand like I think that that is sort of a benefit because you like have to communicate in some way in order to just even just to literally be like do you have a strap on or do I (laughs) like you know like you have to like discuss those things in order to like literally have the sex and I think that those types of conversations can then be applied to any type of sex even if you are like if you have that assumption in your mind of like oh I'm pretty sure this person is a top and I think I know what that means and what they like it still can be good to like ask more about that I like that you said the sex. If you're going to have the sex. <laughs> you are going to have the sex. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. I just want to chime in on a couple of things. One thing, I think when I first started, like basically when I almost stopped having sex with cis men, you know, barring a few 
errant men that come through the almost a few bonus they were grandfathered in yes it's fine fine. um anyway i think that like because i've had a lot of sexual trauma with cis men i had kind of this assumption that like those things don't happen as much in queer dynamics those things and i don't think they happen as much but i just want to speak to the fact that they do happen And I think that it's really important to be checking in with the person you're with and picking up on like not uh, spoken cues as well as spoken cues. Um, And I think that also if someone asks to stop and then you think that it's just for a break and you just go ahead and start without like consent being part of that, then I think that that's really not okay. So especially, you know, as we've been talking about, when you're first having sex with with someone, there's a lot of questions to be asked. And I think that it's really important to be checking in. And just because someone isn't a cis man doesn't mean that they can't do damage. Yeah, I I think is this okay is a good question to ask when you're first having sex with someone and like literally stopping what you're doing and asking like is this okay are you comfortable not just like being like is this okay as you're ripping their clothes off right yeah Um, and like not pausing for a response right um I also you know want to talk about my experience as a baby gay at 28 and being with a service top and how confusing and which we're going to get into in a minute which was like it was really confusing to me to talk about sex at that time because I hadn't talked about sex, which like wasn't good for many, many reasons, obviously. But when you're first coming out, I think you can feel like there's a big learning curve and that you don't know terms and that you don't know like when someone says that to you, like what that means and what that means for you. But the good news is everyone is just trying to have a good time. So I'm just here to echo, you know, what what Jules is saying. The other good news is that we're here to tell you. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, ask us your I, friends at season of the bitch at gmail.com i wanted to build on something else that jules brought up which is the what a lot of i guess what a lot of times are called like scripts around like heterosexual sex versus not heterosexual sex and there are because of like what we talked about at the beginning the way that we're taught about sex what sex is that sex is just piv penetration and like you know god is closing his eyes if you do anal so it's fine like whatever the weird shit is that we learn about sex <laughs> is that a like, thing people say <laughs> i mean not, not like god is closing his eyes but like there are plenty of people who are like i'm staying a virgin until marriage like I, that door is fine i think i just really like the idea that like like god doesn't really love sex but he is like he recognizes that he has to let us have it so he just closes <laughs> his eyes while that's going on catholic like pre-cana which is the training that you get before you get married in the catholic church they tell you that god is physically with you in the room when you have marital sex so that's the worst thing i've ever heard <laughs> <laughs> um so anyway wh- where was i going with this um, there's because like there are so many scripts for like sex between two cis straight people they're con- like it is not unrelated that there are a lot less few- many fewer scripts for sex between two people that aren't cis het men and women 
And I think that's one of the great things about Queer Socks is that while it leaves room for a lot of ambiguity that you have to figure out as you're going along, it also means that like, it's much more creative, much more fun, like much more interesting. Um, and so I just, this, what I'm saying here is really just an endorsement of Queer Socks. And I wanted to throw that in there as well. Yeah, this is an absolutely. official endorsement of the pod. Yeah. <laughs> um, I guess I, I do want to say also that I think it's like it's then possible to bring some of those dynamics into straight sex you may be having as well. Um, but I think like I feel like I've learned those things from queer sex. I agree. Mostly. And I also think like for me and just like when I so like as a queer person who's in a relationship with a queer person, like I think that like there are challenges when you are like two people that are men-ish and women-ish in a relationship, which is roughly where I'm at, um, <laughs> to be like, okay, we're both queer people. We're both like cis-ish. Like we are trying to like have a sexual relationship in ways that doesn't reproduce straight scripts. And that can be difficult, but it's also a lot easier because you've had like sexual experiences before that are so far afield of those scripts that you're like, what did I learn? What can I bring to this relationship? And one of those things is the kinds of conversations that you were talking about, Jules, that you have to have in these kinds of like obviously queer sexual experiences and trying to bring that sense of like adventure and communication into a relationship where there are more pre-existing scripts is like difficult, but I think really, really rewarding. Yeah, absolutely. Um, a couple of other like more specific things, I guess, that I wanted to mention, um, like in terms of comfort, but also consent. I think one thing that I found useful more recently is like considering maybe like not using substances, especially substances you're not super used to when you're first having sex with someone. Um, personally, I am a huge stoner, but I like to be sober when I'm first hooking up with someone just because I think it really allows me to be more present. And that's like something that I've experimented with and just found for myself is something that I prefer. Um, but I think those types of things about like, what are sort of the other sensual experiences you're going to be having while you're having sex can be good to think about um and those can include like do you want the lights on or off do you want to play music do you prefer it to be quiet while you're having sex um are there like roommates that might overhear that you'd like to you know like put on some music to make sure that doesn't happen or like whatever the things are that are going to make sure that you and the other person or people involved are going to have the most comfortable time possible. Um, and I think those are all things that you can like talk about, but also are just like good to think about for yourself. Like, what do I prefer in a sexual experience? Yeah. I just also wanted to say, cause I know this like varies real, but for me, I often um don't really like to have sex sober when it's with people I'm not in a relationship which is the majority of the sex life that I've had um but I think that and like this definitely varies for people that's something for me with trauma is like I just generally like to have a drink or two but I'll also like you can also talk to people about that beforehand and talk about consent and be like I'm gonna have some drinks I also like do and have sex with you and not that obviously consent is like 
malleable consent is you can rescind it at any time. But I think having those conversations of being like, we're going to get some drinks, but like, I do want to have sex with you. I just like also want to be tipsy. That doesn't mean that I like, am not in a place to consent. There's also, yeah, I mean, a, a big difference between being too drunk to consent and being like, I'm tipsy and would like to have sex. So I don't know. I think there's like, how am I going to phrase this? I guess there's more ways to like talk about consent in a way that's like, and if that changes later, I'll let you know, but this isn't like uh, a reason not to, because especially when I've dated people who like Mm -hmm. don't drink and I'm drinking and then they're like, not sure what to do. So I'll like talk about it while I'm sober. And so I think you can also do that. If some people like substance aided sex. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's a really good point. And I think it also like, it's definitely something good to communicate about because like I, again, huge stoner. I have hooked up with someone who's sober, who was explicitly like, I don't like, I don't want to have sex while you're inebriated in any way. Um, which is like, then, you know, I've also been with other people who maybe like don't smoke, but they're happy to have sex while I'm high. Um, which is something that I also enjoy on occasion, highly recommend if that's something you're into. Um, but yeah, I, I think like just talking openly about it again, is is a good way to go. Um, one other thing that I think I kind of already mentioned this, but I feel like just because a lot of people ask about like specific ways to ask for things, um, I think just like explicitly saying like, can we do X or can I do X? Like, can I kiss you? Can I go down on you? Whatever the thing is, I think like asking directly, especially if it's like something that you have a sense the other person is going to enjoy that you would like to do for them slash with them. I think like that can be a really nice kind of like explicitly asking consent, but also just like a nice way to just be like, Hey, like, can can we do this? And then like, you know, if they say yes, you get to do it. And that's great. Yeah, totally. I love asking people like, hey, so do you want to try this thing? Or like, especially if you're like switching from not using toys to using toys or something. And just like being silly and smiley about it, because I think like, yeah, you're it's a vulnerable place for both of you. And like, you might as well like try to be a little goofy about it. Yeah. And it's sex is silly. Sex is like funny and fun. And like, I, I think that that's great. And I really enjoy when like both people are just kind of like this is like really fun and silly exactly exactly yeah i also just wanted to um give a quick shout out to friend of the pod lubrication Um, (laughs) but i think there can be like a lot of stigma around using lube i think of um i think it's in super bad where they're like lubes for like dry old ladies or whatever the fuck um (sighs) I don't know if anyone else remembers that line. No stuck with me. Okay, well, I think it was super I, bad. I haven't seen that movie, but I feel like I have absorbed the stigma that like <laughs> you shouldn't just use lube for like penis and vagina sex. Yeah, I love lube. I've also hooked up with more than one like cis man, not even all whom's were straight, but who just like didn't keep lube around until I introduce them to how nice lube is and then would be like wow like it does feel better or whatever the fuck yeah Mm. 
Anyway, yeah, no, <laughs> no such thing as too much lube. Lube is beautiful. You should, if you have like safe sex supplies, condoms, etc., you should have lube as well. And again, this is something where queer sex, it's like if you're right. using a toy that's made of like plastic and is not like a human flesh, um, you like have to use it because there's no sort of like natural lubrication whatsoever. Right. But it's also just like a great tool that we have that makes everything better. Oftentimes any like pain or discomfort you're experiencing during sex could be fixed with more lube. So I just think if you're not using lube, that just tells me you're probably not being very creative. Yeah. And you, and you might like not be having great sex because it might just not feel as good as it could. So I don't know, play, play around with it. Try it. Please at least try it. To be clear, I'm not saying you need to use lube for everything you're doing. Um, it's not like you, you want to make out. Let's let's squirt some lube. <laughs> let's on my lube it up <laughs> like you always could. <laughs> um, yeah, I I think that it's it's a good thing, and we've de- we're definitely going to get into a couple different kinds of lubes in a little bit. But um, there's there's options for you. Yeah. Anyway, we're not currently sponsored by the big lube industry, but we could be. We could be. <laughs> yeah. We're so willing. <laughs> We're ready. <laughs> Venus is in Pisces. It's slut season, baby. Let's go. Um, so I think we're going to switch into talking about contraceptives and safer sex. Um, I'm going to get into a different kind of contraceptive a little bit later for a different question. But I do want to talk a little bit about an experience I recently had um, because it was the first time I had used a basically it was kind of like a dental dam and because both of us had vaginas and um, we both were seeing multiple people and they just wanted to be safe about it. Um, but to be honest, you could not feel anything. You couldn't feel anything because it's just like a little sheet of plastic over your shit. So like that clit needs more than that. That's all I got to say about it. So, you know, I think that adds into what we're like. We were talking about this in our group chat about how there there just like isn't a lot of options for people um, who both have vulvas to have super safe sex. Um, And anyway, we ended up stopping what we were doing and just like cuddling, kissing. And that was like totally great until we both got tested and then it was fine. And it is harder to transmit disease, but not all of the diseases. Um, So like as someone who is doing a poly thing right now, it's been really important to talk to partners about like who they're sleeping with and who their partners are sleeping with, how regularly they're getting tested and continuing to have those conversations as those answers may evolve. You know, I've been getting tested about once every other month lately, and, like, I definitely recommend doing that. If you can, there are often free clinics for that sort of thing. Yeah, this reminds me of someone I very briefly was talking to on a dating app, as in this was the full the full conversation is what I'm about to tell you all. <laughs> that is how brief it was. But in their bio, it said, like, it was on Hinge, and so it was the prompt that's like, let's argue about, and it was like that being poly or like ethically non-monogamous is a way of like taking someone's autonomy, and they like matched with me, and so I was just like, hey, what do you mean by that? Um, and they went into this whole rant, but talking about how like there's 
the point, the bottom line, they were like TLDR, like there's nothing ethical about wondering who other people are fucking and like safety wise. Yes, there is. Um, I'm not going to get into the pros and cons of the rant that they sent me, but needless to say, I did not respond to that, (laughs) but I did send it to Laura. I was just like, this is hilarious. I was losing my mind. (laughs) Um, but I think this really goes back to talking about consent and informed consent, which involves like at least some level of agreed upon knowledge about the other person's sexual habits and safety so that you can decide for yourself and with them, like what precautions you'd like to take so that you're both as safe as possible. And so in that sense, it's not like unethical to be like, are you sleeping with other people? Like how many? And to want to know that, um, So that was just kind of wild. And in that vein of informed consent, another thing that recently happened to me on a dating app is that someone who was in an open relationship, like didn't tell me they were in a relationship and that was over as soon as they like accidentally told me by being like, oh, I'm like doing blah, blah, blah with your partner. And I was like, or with my partner. And I was like, oh, do you like have a long-term partner? And they were like, yeah. And I was like, the thing is, I would have been fine with that, except now I feel very weird about it because why didn't I know that already? Right. Um, And we had big information. Yeah. We had no different anything. We had like just been talking. But anyway, that's that on that. Tell tell people or at least like some people don't want to know who else you're sleeping with, but just like discuss the level of knowledge you'd like to know about each other. Yeah, I guess one one other small thing I wanted to mention here, it's really just more of a rant, but like I have had the experience of having an STD exposure, which is where like someone you have had sex with tests positive for an STD. You don't really know like exactly when they got it or if you have it. So I got tested and basically like the process for the specific STD, which is chlamydia, is like they just treat you whether or not you have it because like the test results take long enough to come back. Um, So I ended up testing negative, but also had to go on this whole like course of antibiotics and stuff. But when I was at the doctor, I was literally like play by play, like here is what we did. Is there any chance that I actually contracted this STD? And the doctor was like, I literally don't know. <laughs> like, I, I am not like, sure. And then we started. Um, <laughs> well, yeah, it wasn't like, it was not that detailed, but I was like, you know, here's what we did. Here's like whose parts went into which holes, you know, but they, they literally did not know. And this is like a doctor who this is supposed to be their area of expertise. Um, and I don't know, I guess it just sort of led me down this rabbit hole of like trying to research different, like there's a lot of studies on risk for contracting STDs specifically for penetrative penis and vagina sex, mostly for the penis haver in the situation. And there's really not a lot of research about how STDs impact people with vaginas at all. And especially not two people with vaginas having sex. Like it's just very, there's very little is known about this. Um, so I guess the the message of that is just kind of bleak, but it's, it's let, you know, like we, we are like making our own information in a lot of these cases. Um, And I don't know if you find a doctor who does happen to study that or know more about that, hang on to them because they are rare. Yeah. So speaking about a lack of research, um, we also want to talk a little bit about abortion and we've done many episodes about this, but I just want to talk a little bit specifically about abortion experiences of people who are not 
cis and heterosexual. So <laughs> I don't know why I said it like that. Um, <laughs> but obviously, typically the conversation is like very binary. And so there's actually no statistics regarding the number of trans and gender non-conforming people who have abortions. Um, the generally accepted statistic is that one in four cisgender women has an abortion um, during reproductive years. So like likely it's a high number, but it is what it is. So, but there is a study that was published about the prevalence of trans, non-binary and gender expansive folks attempting their own abortions outside of using a clinical setting. And the study indicated that one in three of the respondents had considered ending a pregnancy on their own and one in five had attempted to. And one of the conclusions that they drew from that is that um, this is partially due to like the barriers of facility-based abortions, but um, that compiled with a lot of stereotypes surrounding um, like ability to get pregnant and compounded stigma of um, like there's, all different gender combinations that could result in a pregnancy. But since that isn't recognized, it could be very like not affirming to go and have it assumed your gender and the gender of the person you had sex with that resulted in the pregnancy you don't want. And um, so just another study I wanted to mention was by Elizabeth Bartlett and she interviewed 26 people for a study and found that sexual and gender minoritized people experience um, compounding stigma around abortion. And she was looking at minority stress theory to see how um, people of sexual and gender minorities face an increased amount of stress in daily lives to begin with. And that being compounded by gender dysphoria, like I was mentioning. Yeah. So that being compounded by gender dysphoria and minority stress theory can be utilized to get like why pregnancy and abortion have different implications for people that are not cisgender. And that's also due to the assumptions mentioned about like who's able to get pregnant and a lack of just understanding about how how the pregnancy happened in the first place and having that lack of support can cause a lot of negative impacts for people's mental health so we've talked about this before but it tends not to be the abortion itself that people struggle with but the like judgment and stigma and isolation that follows and that's a lot higher for people who can't who like access is already so difficult, but even more difficult for, for people who it's not um, built for. And I think it's important to talk about because another thing that came up with those studies is that like a lot of trans and non-binary people are given even less information about abortion because it's just kind of assumed that like they wouldn't need that information because like they wouldn't get pregnant. Um, and yeah, so I thought that was important to mention because if you're having sex, if there's a uterus involved, if there's semen involved, a pregnancy could ensue. Cool. So with that, we're going to get into some of the questions that people sent in. And the first one was about vaginal atrophy post testosterone use slash hysterectomies. Yeah, I can talk about this a little bit um, because I've spent some time researching this. It is, again, unsurprisingly, something that there is not a ton of research about, but the long and short of it is if you're someone in an estrogen dominant body and you have lower than average levels of estrogen for any reason, it can be because you're taking testosterone or you've had your ovaries removed. You could have another health condition that impacts hormone levels like a thyroid condition. Um, whatever the reason is, this can cause basically some genital discomfort. 
Um, and the symptoms are typically like dryness and pain while having penetrative sex, like while you're being penetrated. Um, and sometimes also more frequent urinary tract infections or other urinary issues. Um, it can also make it a little bit more likely to have like minor tears in vaginal tissue while you're having sex, which then again, that can create like pain and some unexpected bleeding as well. Um, so the main treatments for this are preventative. Like we talked about, vaginal dryness is a common issue that many cis women deal with as well. Um, and folks who have like average estrogen levels. Um, so using lots and lots of lube, like we talked about is always good. Um, stopping if something is hurting you and just like taking extra precautions around UTIs, like the typical advice of like pee after sex, drink a lot of water, try to pee frequently, um, those types of things. So the good news about this is that these are common problems that cis women experience as well. So there is like a lot of research into this, just not specifically for trans men or trans masculine folks, um, especially because pretty much all cis women experience lowered estrogen levels during menopause. It is like a pretty standard thing to treat. It's just like identifying that you might be a patient who might need this is something that might be a little trickier. Um, so this could be something that you need to like advocate specifically for your doctor about. Um, but basically there's the most common treatment is like a localized estrogen cream or pill that you just like stick right up inside the vagina. Um, it's a low dose, so it won't counteract the testosterone that you're taking. Um, and just as a side note related to that, there are similar issues and treatments available for folks in testosterone dominant bodies who have low T, whether that's due to like taking T blockers or other reasons. Um, you can sometimes experience symptoms that might be unwanted, like pain and difficulty getting erections, if that's something that you still want. Um, and there's also like a low dose testosterone gel that you can put right on the genital area that counteracts the effects of low T without like counteracting the estrogen you might be taking or like other hormones you might be taking. So that's, that's basically it. And it's like the, again, the good news is it's like a common and pretty easy thing to treat. The bad news is just that there aren't nearly enough doctors focusing on like trans healthcare and this issue specifically. Um, so I, one thing that I recommend is just, there's the specific doctor, Dr. Juno Obedeen Maliver. Um, and she's one of like the main experts in trans and intersex patients dealing with these issues right now. So I think like her work can just be useful if you think that you need to talk to your doctor about this. Um, like hearing how someone who is a doctor talks about these issues, I think can then give you the language to go to your own doctor and actually be listened to and taken seriously. Um, so yeah, that, that's basically the, the advice that I have for that. And I hope that if this is a problem you're dealing with, I hope it gets better. It can be very scary and frustrating. Mm, that was so helpful and informative. Agreed. And um, speaking of genitals, we got another genital <laughs> question. Hell yes. Um, <laughs> yeah, so someone else asked us to talk about vulvas looking different from person to person. And so I just kind of wanted to briefly talk about how genitals are a spectrum. Um, and so essentially the way sex is assigned at birth is that most people probably know that like the nerves of the clit is the same tissue that is a penis. 
So when you're born, if it's 0.9 centimeters or less, they're like, that is a clit. Um, if it's 2.5 centimeters or greater, they're like clearly a little penis. Um, anything in between, which you might be thinking that's like a, almost a couple of centimeters, you're correct. Um, that is <clears throat> what's considered intersex. And in a US context, typically that means that they're given surgery to look more like one or the other. And I didn't know what intersex meant until like my first gender studies class in undergrad, which is why I thought that that was like important to mention on our sex ed ep. But I think that's also really due to like this vested interest in the construction of like two opposite genders when in reality, like sex nor gender exists in this binary way, but like setting up two sexes is kind of how like that logic stems from. So, and then I also just want to talk a little bit about, because this person asked about like vulva specifically, like the beauty standards around that. And so in a lot of places that where like porn is produced, there's laws against showing um, the like inner labia protruding past the outer labia, which is like very, very common, Um, but it's like illegal to show that. And that's, that's fucked up as you know it should be illegal to not show that and right <laughs> every <laughs> porn needs to have at least one at least one protruding labia <laughs> yes <laughs> um yeah no that is very fucked and i just would like to say as someone who has been told i quote know my way around a cunt um <laughs> which is powerful it's honestly it's ridiculous i don't understand anyway i just love how vulvas look different for each person like it's unbelievably hot for me to discover what someone's vulva looks like and I'm just like yes let's go let me put my face in it (laughs) I love that and I I think really the prevalence of like lesbian art that's just depictions of vulvas um or like even written like I think Eileen Miles has a thing where they like wrote a little like ode to different vulvas they've encountered in Uh, their life it that should tell us that like even if you've experienced a lot of stigma around it there are many people out there many of them dykes who will love your vulva for exactly how it is exactly find those people get rid of the haters yes we are out here (laughs) absolutely Well, I think for time, this is probably the last question we're going to get to. But again, if we did not get to your questions, we we will soon. We we like talking about sex. So the next question, well, it's actually kind of two questions that we put together. So one of them was about endometriosis and PCOS. And then the other one was about vaginismus and pelvic pain. So we're kind of putting this all together into our pelvic pain segment. Um <laughs> Welcome to pelvic pain with season of the bitch. Um, I also just wanted to plug um, that our chronic illness episode with Caroline Riley, we talked a lot about endo and Caroline also writes a lot about that. So that's another good resource for that specifically. But yeah, we, we have thoughts. We have thoughts. We have personal experts on the pod. We do. Um, Yeah. So I have endometriosis. Just a bit, uh, a brief background on my endometriosis journey. Um, I was diagnosed in 2016, which you can only get a diagnosis through surgery. So I had surgery for endometriosis where they removed three golf ball-sized lesions from my pelvic floor. Um, They tested those cells. Those cells were endometriosis cells. So that's like 
how you have it. Um, there's no type of scan or anything that you can do that shows it shows up on. Because they had grown that large by that time, um, they think that it had started growing 10 years prior. So when I was 16 years old. And then I didn't get a diagnosis until I was 26. Um, my pain did significantly get better after that surgery. That's not the case for everyone. Um, and uh, I have to have an IUD for the rest of my life, basically, until I hit m- menopause. Um Originally, I was told, like, as we've been talking about, medical professionals don't know shit about things that only affect people with uteruses. Um, So I was originally told that an IUD helps slow the growth of endometriosis because it's a chronic illness. You have it for your whole life. So even though I had surgery, there's still cells in there that, like, continue to grow and shed on a 28-day cycle. Anyway, so the IUD does not slow the growth. It only helps mitigate the symptoms. Yeah. So um, I'm undiagnosed, but I've had like doctors, an acupuncturist, a naturopath, my osteopath, (laughs) Um, every every medical herbalist person I've ever been to in my life. Um, But A, I've never gotten someone to like I tried to go to a gynecologist who literally claimed to specialize in it. And all she did was stab me in the uterus and ask if it hurt. And I said, yes. And she was like, "Hmm, okay. Um, Anyway, (laughs) but I have an IUD. I've had it since I was 19, which I got mostly due to pelvic pain, like also because I needed contraception. But the reason I chose an IUD was for like this symptom mitigation. And when I was talking to like an osteopath, I went to for a while she essentially said like other than surgery that the other thing she would recommend is an IUD, which I already had. Um, but I also want to talk about, I have done pelvic floor physical therapy, which I got a lot of relief from. Um, yeah, it's really helpful. It definitely, I thought it sounded super awkward and, um, it was not as awkward as I thought. Also, the person I went to was like very trauma informed. If anyone's in Chicago wants a recommendation, happy to share. I loved her slash. I still love her. I just haven't been in a minute. Um, but yeah, it was really helpful. Like she would do like muscle releases there and then also taught me different like exercises to do at home. And yeah, I like, didn't know that existed until I did it. And people use it for different things too. It can be good for IBS, which I also have, um, just generally any like kind of muscle situations in your pelvic region. It's good for. Yeah, no, I like, I literally wanted to become a pelvic floor physical therapist after I went to one because it was so helpful. Um, I went, this was before I was diagnosed. I, so I also have a recommendation and if you're in Ithaca, New York, um, And I was like uh, early 20s. I had just gotten out of a very abusive relationship that included a lot of sexual trauma. And so in addition to endometriosis, I had raised nerve endings. And so if you've experienced a traumatic event, a lot of these pelvic floor physical therapists are trauma informed because one major way that your pelvic floor can just basically freak the fuck out is when you experience a trauma. And yeah, which we're going to talk about more soon with this question as exactly. well. Exactly. Yeah. Sorry. There's a lot to get to with this question, which is why we were like, this is where we will end on. <laughs> um, but yeah, what 
the physical therapist can help with? Well, first of all, mine like would give you like a heating pad and like make sure you're really comfortable and all the things. And like they usually do stuff like that. It's very different than like a regular doctor. Um, And so I found it really, really helpful as well for um, both trauma. And I'm sure it helped my endometriosis before I even had that diagnosis. Um, so I also think as we've been talking about communication is really key to having good sex. And like that is true here, too. I think it's really important for me to communicate to partners early on that I have endometriosis and talking about the types of penetration that I like. Um, and I sometimes like to tell people exactly where my G spot is, depending on. Wait, what do you mean? Like people don't know where it is. You can like feel it. Yeah, but I think not everyone knows what it is. Interesting. We need to talk about what a G spot is. Yeah, we'll save that for next time. Stay tuned. <laughs> yeah, like we gotta follow up on that. In the next so I'm episode. like, you can like feel I it. I know, but not everyone knows that. Okay, <laughs> not, not everyone knows that. No, yeah, that makes uh, anyway. Okay, sex yeah. ed sucks. That's what we're here for. That's why we're talking about it. So yeah, sometimes I'll explain that, or you know. um I think there are a lot of tools that you can use to help with pain. So I recently got these vaginal suppositories that are 100 milligrams of CBD in coconut oil um, that you insert into your vagina. You like keep them in your fridge. And then um, when you're feeling pain, you put them into your vagina. And shout out to Zoe, who told me that CBD specifically helps with uterine pain, something in CBD, like affects that area more yeah there's like receptors on your uterus or something i don't know science but the science was explained to me and it made sense in the moment (laughs) and i appreciate (laughs) the secondhand knowledge yeah you like put your legs up the wall for 15 minutes it helps um the like absorption into your body and it's really good for general pain relief if you're having a heavy pain day but it's also really good to do like 30 minutes before you plan on having sex because it helps with lubrication and pain control um, I also know that Jules talked a bit about weed and sex, but I just want to talk about it in this instance as well. So like as many people know, weed is an aphrodisiac. Um, it like can make you feel horny for sure, um, which I find to be really helpful with my endometriosis issues because not only does it help with arousal and then it also helps with pain because THC is really good at mitigating pain as well. Um, it also helps with pain like before, during, and after. Yes. I also wanted to give another lube shout out to weed lube specifically, not just yes. CBD lube, like lube with THC in it. Yes. Um, I love it. I've been using it since I guess I was like 23 and I bought it in Amsterdam and just like a full sad story. Okay. So I had already bought it and then I made some of my friends get it. And then we were in like a bathroom in the airport. Cause it had like weed, like leaves on the um, bottle. It came in. We were like pouring it into like travel. Oh, we were emptying our travel shampoo bottles and like rinsing them out and filling them with weed lube. Um, <laughs> so that we so can bring amazing. it back. <laughs> and it was worth it. Um, it was also a fun bonding because it was with two friends who I just like didn't necessarily talk about sex as much with. And I was like, you have to tell me how it goes. And they did. And it was fun. <laughs> um, but also because one of the questions we added into this was about vaginismus and pelvic pain. So I wanted to talk a little bit about that. I don't have personal experience with it, but I learned about it in like a psychology of human sexuality class. And so I will now speak about it as if I'm an expert. 
Um, so if people don't know, vaginismus is typically a trauma response, like Laura mentioned, where the body responds to any attempt at penetration by the vaginal muscles tightening up and making it really hard, if not impossible for penetration. And it can also cause additional pelvic pain because the like vaginal canal muscles are connected to a lot of the other muscles in that area. And so since it's both a mental and physical thing, it's obviously important to address the root of trauma. Also, if you have access would like highly support a sex therapist, but there are um, physical ways that people work on this response. And so one of them is getting a set of, they're called pelvic floor dilators. They look like dildos, but they start at like a very small size and you'll get a pack that goes up to a larger size. Um, and you start with the smallest size and like slowly work your way up. And this trains the muscles to not react by tightening or spasming by like starting with something very small. And like, that can be something you do on your own. I also think it could be something that's like healing to do with a partner. If you have a supportive partner and like, that feels good for you. Um, also of course, just want to say like sex does not have to include penetration. Um, if that's just not something you want to do, you also don't have to, these are just tips that if that is something you generally enjoy, but you're having this issue that that could be something that helps you be able to enjoy it again. Yay. Yay. Vaginismus. Vaginismus. Um, you know, that was super helpful. Thank you both for sharing all of your knowledge about this. I also feel like, I mean, endometriosis is like one of the most underdiagnosed illnesses. And like a lot of these issues are very underdiagnosed. So yeah, and already we're at one in 10 people with a uterus have endometriosis and it's right. extremely underdiagnosed. I just, I feel like we have to say, like, I know we've been saying we're not experts, but it's just like, there is very little knowledge about this. Sure, is anyone an expert? Yeah, like, like, I, I feel like by going through it, you are an expert. Exactly. Like there's embodied, oh, yeah. embodied wisdom. Yeah. I only meant don't take um, official medical advice. Do I know more right. than your doctor? Legally Probably. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> are we smarter than your average doctor? Yes. <laughs> Can you sue us for our medical advice? No. Go to your doctor. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> uh, well, I don't know why that just reminded me of are you smarter than a fifth grader? Ooh. Um, <laughs> no. They I don't remember know. so much. That's true. Fifth graders are very smart. Um, yeah. <laughs> anyway, I, I think that those are all the questions we have time for today, but we did get a lot of other amazing questions such as how to use a strap on, um, questions about queer sex terms, feeling yes. embodied during sex. Oh, I like these teasers. Yeah. So at like, I mean, one, we will hopefully be following this up with an episode at some point in the future, but two, if you would like to cut the line and just personally ask us immediately, um, you can join our discord by going to patreon.com slash season of the bitch. And also, you- we're about to have 420 ups once again, yes. Hell where yes. we get silly as hell. <laughs> Only for um, our Patreon babies, though. Yes, absolutely. Speaking of weed, Lou. Um, and we also have a trans horror movie group that we're going to be starting soon. So that's something to look out for. Uh, you can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Season of the Bee. 
visit our website, seasonofthebee.com, and rate, review, subscribe on iTunes or wherever you're listening to us right now. And of course, give us five stars. Why wouldn't you? you. This information was fire. Happy Aries season, bitch. (laughs) Hell yes. All right. Love you. Love you. Bye. Bye. Bye.